Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This episode of Communion Sanctorum is titled, Awakening. The tide of pietism that swept portions of Europe in the 17th century arrived in North America in the 18th. Like the charismatic movement of the 1960s, Protestant denominations were split over how to respond to pietism. Presbyterians were divided between those who insisted on strict adherence to the teachings of the Westminster Confession and those whose emphasis was on having an experience of saving grace. The two sides eventually reunited, but not before the contention became so sharp that it led to a rift. That reached its zenith, or nadir might be a better description, during the Great Awakening. As we saw in our last episode, the halfway covenant of New England allowed people to be members of the church without being saved, which, of course, is a formula for disaster. The halfway covenant, along with the assault of the pseudo-intellectualism of the Enlightenment, resulted in a creeping spiritual lethargy among the churches of the English colonies. Jonathan Edwards, who became one of the main luminaries of the Great Awakening, remarked before it began that the spiritual condition of New England was abysmal. The first stirrings of revival began as movements in local churches five to ten years before the Great Awakening. There had been some minor revivals in Northampton during the time of Edward's grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, in the 1720s. Theodore Frelinghuysen was a Dutch Reformed pastor who'd come to North America to pastor four churches in New Jersey. Frelinghuysen was what's called a precisionist, a Dutch version of an English Puritan. Puritanism was exported to Holland by William Ames, where it was referred to as precisionism. Now, Pastor Frelinghuysen discerned a general spiritual malaise in all four of his congregations there in New Jersey, an appalling lack of practical piety. So he decided to embark on a program of reform. He started visiting people in their homes. He enforced church discipline and preached fervent evangelistic sermons. A few opposed these innovations, but he persevered, and the churches began to grow with genuine conversions, resulting in a warming up of the entire congregation in their fervency for the things of God. It was the first stirrings of revival, which spread to other Dutch Reformed churches. By 1726, Frelinghuysen was recognized as a leader of revival. The Presbyterians of New Jersey saw what was happening among their Dutch neighbors and soon joined the revival under the work of father and son team William and Gilbert Tennant. But when it comes to the Great Awakening, the name most closely associated with it is Jonathan Edwards. Edwards is considered by many to be one of the most brilliant minds in American history. He wasn't just a great theologian. He was a top-ranked philosopher and scientist. Edwards is sometimes presented as a fiery preacher in the Puritan vein. The popular notion of him is that he was a revivalist preacher of a main similar to, well, George Whitfield. His most famous sermon was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The title alone gives one the impression of a wild-eyed and crazy-haired pulpit pounder. But that image is far from what Edwards was really like. He was reserved and tended toward shyness. He was more at home in his study among his books than in a pulpit. Edwards spent 10 hours a day studying. His messages were filled with theology, and their delivery, well, it was not the kind of fire and brimstone preaching that many assume it to be. His style was to virtually read his messages. Now, that's not to say that his delivery was wooden, but descriptions of it remarked on the lack of gestures or inflection of voice. Flamboyance was nowhere in sight when Edwards spoke. 
He trusted in the eloquence and logic of his message to persuade, rather than by affecting a dramatic persona. If there was grandeur in his message, it was due to what he said rather than how he said it. Edwards was a PK, a pastor's kid. His father, Timothy, was a minister in the town of East Windsor, Connecticut, and by the age of 13, he'd mastered Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. He wrote essays on scientific matters and penned one on the behavior of insects that became famous. As a teen, he read and consumed the ideas of Sir Isaac Newton. He graduated from Yale at 17. It was during his college years that his relationship with God deepened into a rich intimacy. All of that grew out of the time that he spent studying the nature and the character of God. Edwards added two more years of postgraduate studies and then took a pastorate at a small church in New York for only a couple months. That was followed by a stint as a tutor at Yale for another two years. And then in 1727, he became an assistant pastor to his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, at Northampton, Massachusetts. Also at that time, he married Sarah Pierpont. When Edwards took up his ministry at Northampton in 1727, he found the church to be spiritually dull even though it had been the scene of earlier stirrings of the spirit under Stoddard's leadership. When Stoddard died in 1729, Edwards stepped into the role of senior pastor. He decided to address the spiritual apathy of the congregation by preaching a series of five sermons on justification by faith. He rightly diagnosed the real problem at Northampton wasn't laziness or moral sloppiness. It was an absence of good theology. Instead of preaching the need of repentance and obedience, he focused on the glory of God and the gospel of Christ. And sure enough, a season of renewal came as people recommitted themselves to following Jesus. The messages weren't calculated to elicit an emotional response, but they did. People responded with a remarkable moral and spiritual change, often with intense emotion. After several months, the movement spread throughout Massachusetts and into Connecticut. After three years, it began to dim. But the memory of revival endured, with many hoping that it would be renewed. In 1737, Edwards decided to pen a chronicle of what had happened over the previous three years. It was titled, A Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God in the Conversion of Many Hundreds of Souls in Northampton. Now listen, that's the title, (laughs) not the actual text of the whole thing. The narrative, as it's more conveniently referred to, is what established Jonathan Edwards as the main person associated with revival. In 1739, George Whitfield visited New England. And though Edwards and Whitfield represented different flavors of the faith, they were both deeply committed to the preaching of the gospel. Edwards helped arrange Whitfield's campaign through the area of Boston and then on to Northampton, where Edwards turned his pulpit over to the great preacher. The winds of renewal that had waned a few years before strengthened once more. And then Edwards was invited to speak at the church in Enfield, Connecticut in 1741. His message was titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, reading the text of the sermon today, one might assume that it was delivered in the ham-fisted, fire-and-brimstone manner of a fanatic. But as we've seen, that was not Edward's style, nor did he deliver it in the monotone that some later reports suggest. He spoke as a man convinced of his topic, urging his listeners to make sure that they'd embraced the grace of God. The sermon paints a terrifying picture of eternal damnation, something that Edwards aimed to make clear. Because, as historian George Marston said, Edwards didn't preach anything new to his hearers. They were well acquainted with the gospel as a remedy for sin. The problem was getting them to seek it. While revival was already building, Edwards' sermon at the church at Enfield 
is the crystallizing moment in the Great Awakening. If the coals had been getting hot, they now burst into flame that spread all over New England and to the other colonies, and even across the Atlantic to settle in England and on the continent. As welcome as the Great Awakening may have seemed, some ministers opposed it. Their opposition stemmed from their resistance to the emotionalism that became a mark of revival. People wept in repentance and then shouted for joy at being saved. Some were so emotionally wrought over the process of their conversion, they fainted. A few who were psychologically fragile exhibited what can only be called as bizarre behavior. Such reactions led the enemies of the Great Awakening to accuse its leaders of undermining the solemnity of worship and of substituting emotion for scholarship. Since it's the tendency to stick labels on movements, supporters of the Awakening were called new lights, while those who opposed it were called the old lights. Edwards made clear in his writings that he believed emotion was important, but emotion, including the intense experience of conversion, should never eclipse doctrine and orderly worship. At first, the Baptists opposed the Awakening, labeling it frivolous and superficial. But so many of the new converts were inclined to agree with Baptist positions that they ended up becoming Baptists. And when the Baptists saw all these new members, their opinion of the revival changed. Most notable was the conviction among the new converts that baptism ought to be for those who profess faith in Christ, not infants. Entire Congregationalist and Presbyterian congregations became Baptists. The Great Awakening sent Baptists and Methodists to the western frontier. Settlers continually pushed the frontier westward. It was Methodists and Baptist missionaries who took up the task of preaching to them and planting frontier churches. So those two groups became the most numerous out west. It's difficult to estimate how many conversions took place during the Great Awakening, but gauging by fairly accurate church records taken over that time indicate a conservative number of 10% of Americans came to faith. In some communities, it was much higher than that. Keep in mind, that was in the midst of a society already considered thoroughly Christian. Besides the obvious spiritual effects of the Great Awakening, it had a notable political impact on the British colonies in North America. It was the first movement to include all 13 colonies. A new sense of commonality developed in which the emerging unique identity as Americans, as opposed to British, took root alongside the idea that to be an American meant to be a Christian of the Protestant stripe. The Great Awakening also propelled a wave of missionary activity. David Brainerd, Jonathan Edwards, and others preached to the Indians, and some effort was made to reach blacks with the gospel. Among the colleges birthed at that time was Princeton, Rutgers, Brown, and Dartmouth. Dartmouth trained Indians to serve as missionaries to their own people. Edwards continued in his role as pastor until 1750, when a controversy saw him removed from his post. Edwards believed that communion ought to be given only to those church members who had demonstrated a genuine conversion experience as per the pietistic belief. His grandfather, the previous pastor, had relaxed the tradition of Puritan practice and allowed what we'll call unconverted church members to partake of the Lord's Supper. Stoddard regarded communion as a converting experience. He thought that regular attendance at the Lord's table would be something the Holy Spirit could use to bring conviction and salvation to a needy soul. Well, Edwards disagreed, viewing communion as open only to those that were already converted. By 1750, Edwards had come to this position, though at odds with the tradition of the church that he pastored. When he tried to implement a change in the practice, they fired him. Yeah, they, they canned him. It was then that he embarked on his mission of taking the gospel to the Indians at Stockbridge, Massachusetts. It was while engaged in that work that he wrote his most famous work, 
freedom of the will. Now, I want to share a little story from the life of Jonathan Edwards that may give us some insight into him. After 14 years of marriage, in January of 1742, something happened to his wife, Sarah. She had an intense religious experience. Some historians think that it was a nervous breakdown. Edwards was away at the time on a preaching tour. His pulpit was being filled by Samuel Buell, who gave a series of sermons with profound impact on Sarah. She was overwhelmed to the point of fainting. Her condition was such that she was unable to take care of her children, who were sent away to stay with neighbors until John returned a few weeks later. The town was abuzz with the nature of her condition. Was it some kind of spiritual ecstasy or an emotional breakdown? When John returned, he, of course, went immediately to see what was wrong. She related to him that she'd experienced God's goodness as never before, as she didn't even know was possible. She said that the joy and security that she now had was so intense, it was at times debilitating. John's reaction was interesting. He affirmed she had indeed been visited by God. Now keep in mind that we're talking here about a hardcore strict Calvinist, not a Pentecostal or even a more mild charismatic. After a few weeks, Sarah recovered and returned to the normal activities of life. But Jonathan said that from then on, Sarah maintained a peace and joy that was utterly transformative. In writing about the effects of the revival, while Edwards doesn't name his wife, it's clear some of what he chronicled were things he witnessed in her own experience as she was filled with the Holy Spirit in 1742. In 57, Edwards was appointed president of Princeton, known then as the College of New Jersey. And a short time later, he volunteered to be a test subject for a smallpox vaccine, which instead of inoculating him against the disease, claimed his life in 1758. One of my favorite teachers is J. Edwin Orr. When Orr died in 1987, he was recognized by many as the 20th century's foremost expert on revival. He spent his last years living a few miles from where I am now in California. My good friend and fellow pastor David Guzik befriended Orr's widow, who passed many of Dr. Orr's books, writings, and recordings on to David for posterity's sake. David has faithfully made that material available online at jedwinorr.com. The eminent New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce said, quote, Some men read history, some write it, and others make it. So far as the history of religious revivals is concerned, J. Edwin Orr belongs to all three categories, unquote. Orr tells remarkable stories of the impact of revival on society. The many revivals that he chronicles don't merely add a bunch of new church members. They have an astounding impact on moral revolution. Orr shares that during some revivals, because there was no crime, the police organized singing groups to sing in churches because they had nothing else to do. There were a number of business failures. Pubs and other enterprises that thrive on vice folded. One unforeseen effect during the Welsh Revival was that there was a work stoppage in the coal mines of Wales. For years, the mules that pulled the coal carts were used to hearing the miners curse at them. But when so many of the miners converted during the revival, they refused to curse anymore, (laughs) and the mules no longer heard the profane commands telling them to move. So work in the mines stalled until the mules were retrained to respond to the now clean speech of the joyous miners. If you're interested in more such fascinating stories, I encourage you to head over to jedwinorr.com for more. And I want to also encourage you to check out David Guzik's website at enduringword.com. 
David is one of the premier Bible expositors online today. His free commentary is used by many thousands of pastors, professors, Bible teachers, and students all over the world. And remember, donations of any size to CS are welcome. You can do so at sanctorum.us. And again, thanks. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.